Over the next few weeks, we're going to be picking apart the verses in Matthew that we know as the Great Commission. So the Great Commission is the title that has been given to Matthew 28, 19, and 20. And in particular, we're going to explore the grammar of these verses, and we're going to ask, what is it that Jesus is commanding his disciples to do? And then, of course, by extension, what is Jesus commanding us to do? So the painting that I've chosen for our background, this is from the early 14th century, and it's titled Appearance on the Mountain in Galilee. And that's a reference to Matthew 28, 16, which places them on a mountain in Galilee. So this is going to be part of our Bible 101 series. Bible 101, we're exploring the foundational concepts of our faith from the Bible. Covenant, redemption, what was the good news? What do you mean by good news? And then now we're going to say, what is the Great Commission? Okay. So part of my argument for a Bible 101 series is that it's important for every generation to go back to these concepts that have been passed down to us over time, like the Good News or Great Commission, and make sure we reread them carefully and that we're getting them as accurate as possible. Each generation has to look at the Scripture with a critical eye. Now, you can keep an eye on the past, but we have to realize as well that sometimes over time things build up barnacles. Sometimes over time things get distorted. So we want to go back critically and how can we understand this, uh, what the Bible's telling us based on first century Judaism. And we have more information at our fingertips today than we ever have about the culture of first century Judaism. What was the intended meaning when Jesus said it? And it absolutely is possible that due to lack of cultural information or simply a misreading of the Bible, that we can adopt a stance that's incorrect. And we have to be aware of that. That's why each generation has the responsibility to go back and say, how, do we, how are we supposed to read this? What was Jesus telling us, right? In fact, Jesus even says that. This is from Luke 10, verse 26. Somebody asked Jesus a question, and instead of giving him an answer, he says, well, how do you read it? That's what he wants to know. How do you read the text? How do you read Scripture? And because it, what we realize is that it varies from person to person, from church to church, from denomination to denomination. And this was the case in the first century as well. I mean, the Sadducees read their Bible and got something different than the Pharisees. And then even within the Pharisees, different sects within Pharisees read differently. The Dead Sea sect, those who produced the Dead Sea Scrolls, they read their Bible slightly different. So how do you read it? And if we want to get Christianity right, if that's even possible, we need to make sure that we get as close to the meaning that Jesus intended and then see how it applies to our life in a meaningful way. Right? What happens if we misread the Bible? Well, then we're going to end up with something that's a distortion of what God originally intended. And it turns out that this 
Matthew 28, 19 to 20. It's one of those scriptures where we have a disagreement on how we read it, where the emphasis should be. So it's really good for us, if we want to learn something, to dive right into the middle of that disagreement. Get comfortable in the tension of disagreement. That's where we're going to learn and grow. So, for instance, there are Bible scholars who, when they get to this part that we call the Great Commission, refer to it as the Great Omission. So, I previously mentioned Dallas Willard, and he wrote a book. Now, Dallas Willard passed away 10 years ago now, but he wrote a book, The Great Omission. And his argument is that we've missed the point of the Great Commission when it comes to making disciples. And what he says is that the church has made converts, converts to Christianity. We've made church members as we go, but we're failing to make disciples. Now, if you don't know who Dallas Willard is, he was a powerhouse in the field of spiritual growth, or what is called, if you go to seminary, scholarly circles, they call it spiritual formation. How are you being formed? How are you being molded? What are the forces acting against you, forming your spirit? Are we, as individual Christians, intentionally engaging in practices that are going to mold our souls to become just like Jesus? That's the goal, to become a disciple of Jesus. Do, you, do we even know what those techniques are? Now, in this book, Dallas Willard, he goes much deeper into spiritual growth, some of the practices. He has a lot of uh, strategies and ideas. So make sure you check that out because it really is a good book, especially if you're not familiar with what we're going to be talking about. It would be a good book to have. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. we got to dive into this because there's disagreement. And what we're going to do is here are the topics we're going to cover, okay? We're going to start out very briefly today, very briefly, with a little bit of a history of what the Great Commission, that phrase, the phrase the Great Commission is not in the Bible, and it's relatively new on the timeline of Christianity. The second thing we're going to do is we need to talk about what the command is in the sentence. So in grammar, you have something that's known as an imperative, a command. What's the command in the verse? Because it's the command where we should focus on what Jesus is actually telling us to do. And it turns out the command here in this verse is to make disciples, not go. And this is where the confusion comes in. Because people largely accept the go and ignore the part about making disciples. And since the command is about making disciples, well, then we have to ask, we have to ask ourselves, what do you mean by disciple? What would Jesus have thought constituted a disciple? What was a disciple in the first century versus how we conceive of that word or what a disciple is today? And then finally, and this is part of the argument Dallas Willard is making, is what is a disciple versus a convert? The command is not to make converts to Christianity. The command is to make disciples of Jesus. Okay, next, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the word for baptizing. And this is going to open a whole can of worms. What does that mean? How do we read this? Is Jesus telling us 
the same thing as our current sacrament of baptism. Can the word for baptism refer only to the ritual, or is there a wider semantic range? And that semantic range depends on the context of the verse, which in this case is making disciples. So we'll be looking at what does that mean to baptize or immerse somebody? And then Jesus says, baptize into the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. This is often translated as in rather than into. Um, but what does the name of mean? Does, is that you just pronounce the name, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, like it's a formula, right? Like, a, like an incantation. An incantation causes the God to act. And then you'd have to ask, well, if it's in the context, if, if into the name of is in the context of making a disciple, then how does that support disciple making? There's so many questions to this. Now, the next thing we'd say is, well, what's the whole point of this? Well, the whole point is to teach, to obey. And teaching there, it's a present participle. We'll talk about that in a minute. It happens during the action of the main verb to make disciples. So the process of disciple-making involves ongoing teaching, and the teaching is intended to cause you to end up to obey. It has to do with action, right? This is not in any way, go teach them your doctrines. Go teach them the doctrines the church adopted. That's not what it's saying. Teach them to obey. And if we leave that out, if we just go, but we're not putting in the effort to create a disciple that naturally obeys, then we've missed the point. Okay, and then finally what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about where some of the confusion comes from. Some of the responsibility is found in Mark. Now it's Mark 16, 9 to 20. And there's agreement among scholars that Mark, starting at verse 9 to 20, was added later. This is an addition to the text, not written by Mark. So, for instance, if we look at the NIV, this is Mark 16, 9 to 20 in the NIV. You pull this up on the screen, and the NIV puts this little note in here. The earliest manuscripts and some other ancient sources do not have verses 9 to 20. Now, the earlier the manuscript, the closer you are to the original. And the tendency for scribes is that they'll add things, but they won't take away. So what scholars find as we're looking at, at manuscripts, copies of the Bible, that if there's something added, well, that was probably done later, and this was added. And now, what seems to be going on here is that Mark, um, he has a very abrupt ending to his gospel. And it seems that at some point they weren't satisfied with that abrupt ending, uh, where Matthew and Luke have a more extended ending. And it seems that they went and added on. It's like a summary of Matthew and Luke. Now, what you find in here is something that's similar to the Great Commission, but it's not the same thing. This one only speaks in Mark. It only speaks of the good news rather than making disciples. So this could cause a lot of the confusion as we read Mark and we find something different. But we want to stick to Matthew. We want to stick to the Great Commission that's found in Matthew. 
So we're going to start with a brief history because for most people today, particularly in the West, you've heard the phrase, the Great Commission. It becomes, you've heard it so often that it becomes like Christianese or Biblish. People just use it and we're not really stopping to say, no, when are we, where did that come from? One, what do we mean by it? Two, now it's a very recent term. And generally, if you go look this up, you will find two names that are associated with this term. The first one is from the 1600s, Justinian von Wells, and he was a Lutheran. He was an Austrian nobleman. And what he did is he was mission-oriented. And because of the mission-oriented, he read this verse and said, this must be applied to all Christians. It's our responsibility to go. And you can see then he elevates this verse because that's his mission to be, he's mission-oriented. And then later, and this is where most of us today know this from, is the term became popularized by a gentleman uh, named Hudson Taylor. And you can see here, this is not too long ago. He lived 1832 to 1905. And he was mission-oriented as well. So he read this verse as an elevated command. It's the Great Commission. What are we commissioned to do? We're commissioned to go. In his case, he went to China. So you can see that it's a relatively new phrase, the Great Commission. Now, obviously, we find examples of Paul and Peter in the early church going out, telling people about the good news of God's kingdom reign. And of course, you know, throughout church history, even before the Protestant focus on missions, Catholics spread Christianity. But sometimes that's, you know, it gets confused because sometimes it's the nation who's trying to expand their kingdom, their own uh, reign around the world, and it's in conjunction with the spread of Christianity. I would argue, though, if you look at what Paul's doing, what we find in the Bible, it's slightly different because Paul does get into disciple-making, not just converting people to Christianity. He's going around to all the synagogues, read the book of Acts. He goes from synagogue to synagogue. And then he's also dealing with people who are called God-fearers. They know the text. Because when Paul shows up, there's a foundation within Judaism or even the God-fearers who attach themselves to the synagogues. They understand the scripture. They understand the idea of Messiah. They understand the idea of discipleship. There's context for Paul to talk about. And then as Christianity moves away from that, then we lose the dis discipleship effort, but we amplify the going and converting part. Okay, now, what we're going to do, we're going to dissect Matthew 28, 19 to 20. One of the things you have to do first is you have to translate it into English. And then once we have a translation, you have to in do some interpretation to get a proper sentence. Then we can understand the meaning of what's being, what's being conveyed. So what do we understand the meaning that Jesus is intending to communicate? And meaning is always based on culture and context. And in this case, first century Jewish culture very different than the Greco-Roman culture, and wildly different than our culture today. So 
So you start with the Greek text. Now, it is thought that Matthew was originally written in Hebrew, but what we have are only the Greek copies. So you deal with the Greek. So you start with the Greek text, and then you need to translate it. You need to translate it into English words. This word means into, this word means disciple, this word means to teach. Okay. Then with translation, you have something that's a little bit different. You have to be able to put these into a sentence, and that's a process of interpretation. It's going to rely on the, the rules of grammar and syntax, both for Greek and English, because we have to create a sentence out of these Greek words that makes sense to us in English. Okay. And then once you have that interpretation, then we can say, ah, what does this mean? That goes beyond how do we interpret a, sen uh, a sentence? What does it mean? And meaning involves having a conceptual framework that we place this in. And then one thing we need to add to this way back here in the beginning is, what was the original context? Well, it's a Hebrew mindset, not a Greek mindset. So without a doubt, the original context of Matthew, there's a Hebrew mind behind it not a Greek mind. And what happened when we moved away from the original context of first century Judaism is the church often interpreted this through a Greek mindset. So what we have to have happen is all of these have to line up for us to understand what Jesus is saying. And what if we misinterpret the Greek to English? What if we... Uh, what if we just read it? We have the right English words, but we have the emphasis in the wrong place. What if our conceptual framework is not based on first century Hebrew mindset? Well, in all of those cases, we can end up mistranslating what the Bible says. So, okay, before we go, before we go there, just one quick thing. When I was growing up, I loved math. I was strong in math, but not in English. And a lot of people are that way. Some people who are strong in English, they don't like math. I was math, not English. And uh, so many years ago, when I first heard this word imperative, I was like, what? You know, I'm not strong on my rules of grammar. So I had to go look it up. So if we look at the word imperative, what is imperative? Well, within grammar, it's denoting the mood of a verb that expresses a command. It's an exhortation, as in, come here. So when there's a command, it means you're going to do something. Come here, that's a command. Listen, that's a command. Okay, so that's where you get an imperative. So when we get to Matthew 28, 19, and 20, you have to ask, where's the command? Where's the imperative in here? Okay, so... Let's read it first. I'm going to borrow the first part of this comes from verse 18. Jesus has the authority to commission us. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then we start with uh, verse 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded you. And look, I am with you every day, even to the end of the age. Now, we can look for the verbs. 
What is Jesus commanding us to do? Well, we have this one, therefore go. We have this one, make disciples. You have baptizing, and then you have teaching. These are the four verbs in these two verses. And so if we put them up here, therefore go, make disciples, baptizing and teaching, we would ask, which one is the imperative? And the imperative is right here, make disciples. Okay? Now, what many people do is they place their emphasis on the go. So what is the therefore go? Well, this is a participle. And the participle is acting as a verb. It takes on the verb which it's supporting. So it can have uh, the sense of an imperative. But the participle is action in support of the main verb. Now, this can also be translated like a like completed action or a past tense. And so I'll show you in a minute. There are some translations that have the past tense, having gone, rather than therefore go. And we'll do a little bit more on this next week. But the other two, baptizing, that is also a participle. It's present and it's active. So you're doing this action in support of making a disciple presently. And then finally, teaching. This is also a participle, present and active. It supports the main verb. So obviously, if you want to make a disciple, then there's going to be immersing, baptizing, and teaching that's ongoing. Making a disciple is a process. Making converts can be relatively quick. Okay. so. There's your imperative. Now, we have the problem with go. What? How do we translate that very first part? The aorist passive participle. Therefore, go. So look at all of the variations that we have here. So the New International Version, they translate it, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. The New Living Translation has a comma. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. You look at the English Standard Version, go therefore and make disciples. So maybe the emphasis a little bit more on the go. Um, if we go to a more literal translation, this is the Berean Literal Bible. Therefore, having gone. Now notice what they did. They put that in past tense, having gone. Um, here's one that's a little bit different. God's Word Translation. It says, wherever you go. Now, what they've done is they've pulled it into the present, wherever you go. So you'll often hear, um, if a pastor is preaching on this, they might say, look, it's, it's not really go as a command, because that's not the imperative. As you go about, that's, I've heard it as, as you go about. Now, I don't think that's correct either, but the point is, it's during the process of going that you're going to make a disciple. Okay. Uh, international version, therefore, as you go. So you now you have a little bit of continuous action. 
And then if we go back to a more literal translation, Young's literal translation, having gone. Okay. Now you can see all the variations. How are you going to translate this into English first that does it in a way that communicates what you think the sentence is telling you to do? And you have to use the rules of grammar and syntax, and that's how we discover our meaning. And then one question is, how does it fit into your conceptual framework? If your conceptual framework is that the command to go is the most important thing, then you may translate it with the emphasis towards the go. Now, I'm going to deal with this more next week. The translation of go, I'm not against that, as long as you recognize that the main verb is to make disciples and that the idea of going is uh, in support of that. It's where we place our emphasis. I do, by the way, disagree with this version right here. Wherever you go, I understand what they're trying to do. They want the focus to be on disciple making, but to me, that goes a little bit too far. So I'm a, what I'm going to show you next week is how many times Matthew uses, there's a combination, it's the aorist passive participle for go, just like what we found here, and then a main verb that's a command or an imperative. And Matthew does this throughout his gospel. And what I want to show you is that you would never read any of those verses with the emphasis on go. Okay, so that'll be next week. You'll be the judge if I'm able to uh, convince you of that. But anyways, the question here is, how do you read it? This is so important. How do you read these verses? Where's your emphasis? What's your conceptual framework? Do you have a conceptual framework that's been given to you? And so therefore, when you read it, the voice in your mind places the emphasis on go. Does knowing that the imperative is make disciples, does that change how you look at the verse? And you can see the variations among those translations, right? Even Bible scholars who, who know Greek don't always agree. It's not as simple as saying just translate the Greek into English. It's just not that simple. So if we go back to this idea, you have to get all of these to line up, right? It's not as simple as saying, oh, look, let's just translate the Greek. It's like, no, no, no. There's a process of interpretation. It brings into mind whatever conceptual framework you have. Creating the translation is going to be affected by everything. Do you understand or do you are you aware of the Hebrew mindset, the original context? Because that may affect how you translate that participle that has to do with going. So it's you have to get all of these things to line up. So what we would say is this, look, the main verb is to make disciples. That's the imperative. All of these other ones, these participles, to go, to baptize, and to teach, those are all in support of the baptizing and teaching is happening while you're making the disciples. And the idea, of course, you have to go in some sense. Jesus is standing there in a mountain with his disciples. If he wants this to be spread, well, they have to go away from that point. One thing I would note, too, the ing ending in English, that's how we denote a present participle, a present participle that's happening during the action of the main verb. 
It's an active, ongoing process. So baptizing them is usually a one-time event for us. So perhaps when I mentioned that it could mean immersion, perhaps immersing them is more appropriate and then teaching them. It's ongoing teaching. So what I want to do is offer my own version of how we can read these verses. And this is going to be the one that I'll use uh, throughout this series. And all I'm trying to do really is help you to reframe or, or adjust your conceptual framework based on the original context. So I would say this, therefore, go from here. Right, you have to you have to take the next step. Therefore, go from here. Make disciples of people from all nations. We disciple people, not nations. Now we'll talk more about that, what it means to be a disciple. What are we going to do? Immerse them. Immerse them is another way of understanding the word for baptized. And it can be an ongoing event rather than a one-time baptism. What are we going to immerse them into? Into the reality of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It's the reality of the ways of discipleship is immersive. It's like discipleship is like an immersive course. It's designed to transform you. What are you being immersed into? What's the agent that's going to change you? It's the reality of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. This isn't just pronouncing a name. And what are we going to do? We're going to teach them to obey everything that I've commanded. There's teaching involved. And then it's kind of like an if-then statement. And if you do this, then I will be with you until the end of the age. So this is what I'm going to be shooting for to help uh, adjust your conceptual framework and for some of you, this might come very easily. For others, this could be very difficult to make this adjustment. Okay, but I want you to see that it's not being pulled out of nowhere. There are plenty of people who read this and don't see the same thing as what is probably the most common. So we go back to these topics. This is our plan. We've done a little bit of that history today about the Great Commission. We talked about where the imperative is to make a disciple. We'll look at that more next week. Uh, disciple versus convert, baptizing or immersing into the name of and teaching them. It's actually the idea, making a disciple, and then you're teaching them what needs to be obeyed. And the, when you've transformed an individual into a disciple, the obedience comes natural. So next week, we'll be uh, looking at all those times in Matthew that he's using that combination of go as a participle along with a command to do something. And I think you'll see when we lay them all out that you don't have to necessarily read the last one different than every other one. Okay, so that'll be next week.